Psalm 111. Praise the Lord. I will extol the Lord with all my heart, in the counsel of the upright and in the assembly. Great are the works of the Lord. They are pondered by all who delight in them. Glorious and majestic are his deeds, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wonders to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works, giving them the lands of other nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are steadfast forever and ever, done in faithfulness and uprightness. He provided redemption for his people. He ordained his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who follow his precepts have good understanding. To him belongs eternal praise. So Psalm 111, which you just heard read, is an example of an acrostic psalm. And if you haven't been to English grammar school recently, just a reminder, an acrostic is using the first letter of the alphabet for the beginning of each line. So, and just a reminder too, the Old Testament, so the Psalms, were not written in English. So we're not talking the ABCs, but we're talking the Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalet, and that's about as far as I'm going to go with the Hebrew language. So in the original Hebrew, Psalm 111... Each line after the first one, so the first one says, um, praise the Lord. After that one, beginning with, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. Each line begins with the first and then successive letter of the alphabet. And Psalm 112, which is next week, is the same. So they both do it. It's just a creative way for an author to get his point across. And maybe you've even done something like that in your schooling past, or if you're trying to think of ways to give praise to God, what a great exercise even for us to do. Just maybe go home today and do an A to Z of how you can praise God today, beginning with A and then B and C, and just go to the end. What a, that's maybe just the most practical takeaway from this psalm today, is that you can go home and do the same thing in your own language. So Psalm 111 is that. It's recounting the great works of God. And so to begin today, we're just going to begin by recounting God's work. What kind of work has God done in the world? And verses 2 through 8 give us six ways that God's work are immediately described. So if you look at verses 2 and 3, great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Let me pause there actually first. So the reason we're even looking at this psalm or read the Bible on a weekly basis or hear sermons is because God's works are so great that they should be studied by those who delight in them. So just like you study for a test or study to learn something or study, you know, to build something or to to gain a passion for something, so we should do with God's works, which the Bible is full of them. And we'll get into some of that today, but also God's works are are around everything else around us. God's work is great. It is full of splendor and majesty. God's works are top quality. 
It's not the kind of work that will fall apart or fray at the edges. God's work is great and majestic, and it's everywhere for us to see. Great. There's a difference between good and great. We're going to get to that in a moment. But for this point, God's works are great. They're unmatched. If you look at verse 3, it says, uh, God is, uh, is full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness is only for a little bit of time. No, his righteousness endures forever. Forever. It's, it's pretty remarkable when you think about it. Just take the church as an example. Think about the amount of businesses or organizations or community groups that have come and gone over the past 2,000 years. Like even the best companies today I mean, you could take any company you want. I'll, I'll just throw one out. Think Coca-Cola. It's a, this is a massive company. It has all this money and all this power around the world, but it's only been in existence for the last century, and no doubt it's going to one day disappear. But the church is just one example of one of God's great works that endures for 2,000 years in all different modes and all different places, all different cultures, it endures. God's work is enduring. It lasts forever. It doesn't cease or fade away or change because it's righteous. It's based on God's right design in the world. And as you know, good things last long. Great things last long. If you buy a, a, a cheap t-shirt and you put it in the wash and dryer a few times, it'll begin to fray and go away. But if you buy something that's great and high quality, it'll last much longer. And God's righteousness lasts long and forever. Verse 4, it says he has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful, meaning that all of God's works are memorable. It does not get forgotten. He's caused his works to be remembered. They come back to mind. They are recorded for our benefit, both in the scriptures and in the creation and in one another's stories. We get to hear examples of what God has done all around the world and through each other. And they are easily brought back to mind because God has enabled his works to be memorable. They're things that your memory can easily come back to. Next, God's work is provisional. If you look at verse five, it says he provides food for those who fears him, for those who fear him, he remembers his covenant forever. You know, one of the one of the great things about the God that we serve is that he provides for us. And again, like I prayed in the prayer just a moment ago, we're still alive. We're all here, meaning that God has provided for you to still be here. He provides food for those who need it, for those who fear him. He is good and he wants to keep us alive to serve his purposes until it's our time to come and be with him because he is faithful to his covenant. Because like Aiden said in the children's story, he's faithful to his promises. He will not break his promises and therefore he will provide for us until that promise is come to fruition. Next, number five, God's work is visible. In verse 6, God has shown his power, shown his people the power of his works and giving them the inheritance of the nations. I find this one really helpful. You know, we're, we're told in the Bible to live by faith and not by sight. 
which is a good affirmation and a good encouragement because we can't always see everything that God is doing. But it doesn't mean we can never see what God is doing. God doesn't do invisible work and then say, you got to just trust me on this one. God visibly shows his works in the world. And I think that's a wonderful thing. It says his work is shown. It's clearly evident. You know, in the New Testament, it even goes on to say that because of God's work in creation and the beauty of the world and the beauty of people and the beauty of of God's works that are easily seen by everybody, all people are without excuse. Like we actually all have plenty of opportunity to see that there is a creator God to worship because of the visibility of his works in the world. We're not called, let me just slow this down. We are not called to a 100% blind faith. You don't have to live 100% blind faith. God does ask you to walk by faith, but it doesn't have to be 100% blind. God shows himself in the world. God reveals himself to you. When you came to saving faith in Jesus, if you've trusted in him, that was actually not your initial doing. It actually was God opening up the world to you, opening up himself to you, opening the curtain so you could see him because he took the initiative to open your eyes spiritually and to to show visibly his works in your life. And he does the same even after you believe to, to keep your faith going, to keep it vital. He shows you visible evidences of his working. The last work just right off the bat that we're gonna see is that in verses seven and eight, it says the works of his hands are faithful and just. All of his precepts are trustworthy. So you got three words there, faithful, just, and trustworthy. I'm gonna summarize those three words by saying God's works are good. Remember we said the first point, God's works are great, meaning that they're splendor, they're majestic, they're all over the earth, they're big. And I said, there's a difference between great and good. They go together. Great means that they're, they're majestic. They're supreme. They're over all things. But when we say that God's works are good, it means that they are working for the benefit of people. They are faithful, meaning that they are, you, like, you can count on him. You can count on God's works. He's consistent. He's not going to give up on them. And then when it says that they're just, meaning that he does the right thing all the time. He is for the good of those uh, who can't fight for themselves. His works fight and work on the behalf of those who have no other body to turn to, no other power in and of themselves. For For the injustice in the world, God brings justice. For the weak in the world, God brings strength. For those who have no one else to count on, God brings himself. And therefore, he is trustworthy. When you begin to see that you can turn to God with everything that you have that's a need in your life, and you begin to see him provide for you, that makes his word trustworthy. You build a trust and a faith in him. So those are the the great works of God that Psalm 111 leads us right into. Just, again, through the Hebrew alphabet, that's the way the author leads us in to praise the Lord this morning. So 
How does that make you feel? Just going through that short list pretty quick in light of your circumstances that you walked into this building today with, have the last five minutes changed anything in your life already? When we give a summary of God's works, have the last five minutes already changed the way you view your life, your past week, your anxiety about what's coming this afternoon or tomorrow? Why or why not would it do that? Have you been drawn yet into an authentic place of praise? There might be one thing missing that we haven't talked about yet, and it's you. We haven't brought you into this story yet. But all the Psalms, all the scriptures are to show us the glory of God, but they're also to connect to you and I in our lives today. So let's move on to verse 9. And the second big point I want to talk about is, out of all of God's works that we just mentioned, which you could recount throughout history over and over, we could go through tons of scriptures and talk about different works of God. They're talking about one of them upstairs in the children's story today. But God's greatest work in all of human history throughout all time is God's work of redemption of you. In verse nine, it says, God has sent redemption to his people. What would you say are God's greatest hits of his works in history? I mean, we already talked about some of them and they're talking about one upstairs with the children's time, you know, talking about God saving the people of Egypt. But even if you just were to think of just the physical creation, I know a lot of you have traveled to beautiful places in the world. Like, what would you say are like, man, that if I were to put together an album of God's greatest hits of creation, this has to be on the list. Like, I remember a couple of years ago, I was flying from somewhere in the West and we flew over the Grand Canyon. So I got a bird's eye view of the Grand Canyon. You're like, man, how long would it take me to dig a hole that big? That would take a long time, but God just did it, right? The Grand Canyon, or here's a place I've never been to, but maybe some of you have seen uh, the Himalayan mountains, you know, so where Mount Everest is, but also much, many of the grandest peaks in the world. Or, um, you know, if you ever watch any of those TV shows that talk about the weird sea creatures that live like in the bottom of the ocean, that like, completely dark, and they're just like, oh, someone made that creature. What an amazing work. Or the stars and the moon and the sun and the planets. Once you get into the galaxy, it's like, think about the great works of God in creation. You know, and you could put together a, a huge album of God's greatest hits. Or even if you think about something more circumstantial to life, like what are some of the graces that God has enabled humans or human life to, to live through and to come on the other side of? I just, um, I've been thinking more about you know, a lot of you were born into the era of the world wars and coming just after the world wars, how God didn't allow humanity to self-destruct in that moment. I think I mentioned a few weeks ago, I, I watched the movie Oppenheimer, which is about the, the atom bomb. And so much of that movie talks about how we have the, we have, we now, and we did beginning then have the capacity to just mutually blow up each other and the, the whole thing could be done. 
But God's grace has allowed that not to be the case. That, and I think that's a work of God, that we have the ability to end everything, and yet God is keeping us together. That's an amazing thing. Or even things as silly as, you know, thank God that the Patriots have won six Super Bowls in the last two decades, or that, you know, you have new grandchildren, or like, again, just the, the, ama- the amazing works of God in the world. But none of that compares to verse 9. He has sent redemption to his people. Do you see that? He, talk about a love letter. He sent it to us. He hand-delivered it to us. Redemption. This psalm is actually about your deep value to God, even above and beyond the great works of God that we've already mentioned. You are his greatest work. When God made you individually, he made you uniquely and specifically in his image with deep purposes that no one else has so that you could live a life that no one else could. I was in a Hallmark shop while I was on vacation and I was looking at those signs you can buy and put in your house. I mentioned this in the Wednesday night Bible study, but then you have all these signs you can buy and like put above your, your door. And um, usually as a guy, I just kind of roll my eyes at them. It's like, okay. But this one caught my attention. It said, the world needs who you were made to be. It's like, oh, that's really affirming. Like who I am, uniquely, how God made me, the world needs. And it's the same for each of us because God made us uniquely with a deep purpose. But (laughs) the reason sometimes those signs fall flat in my thinking is like, well, I messed that up a lot. Like the world doesn't need the broken version of Stephen. The world needs the, the good version of Stephen, not the one that's complaining about things or having a pity party or is messing things up or whatever. Like they need, he needs the redeemed Stephen. He needs the Stephen that's been made right. The real Stephen, the real you to emerge like a diamond out of the rough. Like God made you as this precious individual, unique diamond that's been buried and maybe even fractured through the fall, through sin. And so when it says God sent redemption, that is God's greatest work in creating you, seeing that you've been flawed and broken and buried even, and then unearthing that and bringing you back. Redemption literally means buying you back so that you can be the unique you that the world needs, so that God can give you the greatest pleasure to live life with, but also by living in alignment with his purposes. So when you start to see the Bible story through that lens of God buying people back and ransoming them and redeeming them and bringing them into his story, it just begins to explode with goodness. So when Jesus tells the parable of the hundred sheep, he's like, the shepherd has a hundred sheep and 99 of them are doing awesome. They're hanging out together, they're safe, but there's this one sheep who's the rebel and he, he's lost his mind and he's gone that way and he's run off into the wilderness and he's getting into all sorts of mischief. What does the shepherd do? Well, you hang out with the 99 sheep and you let that one go because he's just, he's a lost cause. No, what Jesus says, what God does is God goes after the one lost sheep and brings him back, redeems him back, brings him back into the flock. Or the story of the prodigal son. 
You know, it's a, a story of a father with two sons. And the son takes his inheritance. He convinces his father to give him his inheritance early. He takes it and he runs off and he squanders the whole thing. So what's the moral of the story? Well, this father just let the son run off and live a, a runaway life. So he, just, he left him out there and he, he lived a hopeless life and he died and that was it. No, that's not how the story goes. The story is the son comes back and the father sees him a long way off and he runs to him and embraces him. And he says, welcome back. My son has returned. Let's throw a feast for my son who is back. That's the heart of God. That's the heart of redemption in the story of the scriptures. You know, even, even think about the story of Joseph. Joseph and his brothers. So you have Joseph and his, his brothers in the tribe of Israel. The brothers are all jealous of Joseph. And so they, they get rid of him and they sell him off to, to be a slave in Egypt. And he's gone. And yet as the story unfolds, it's a beautiful story. I encourage you to read it again sometime. Genesis 37 to 50, kind of the last part of the book of Genesis. But God works his story through Joseph's hardship to eventually bring him to a place of position in Pharaoh's court to help lead Egypt, to lead the whole area through a famine. And so when the brothers come to Egypt looking for for Egypt to provide food for Israel, they encounter their brother Joseph, who at that moment has the decision, I'm either going to forgive my brothers who abandoned me into slavery at this point, or I can just be harsh and turn them away. And there's this beautiful sentence of what Joseph says to his brothers. This is Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. That's the heart of God, using a broken situation to redeem his people and to even teach us something deeper about the heart of God. And God did all this most visibly. Remember, God's works are visible. We're not called to live a 100% blind faith. God did this most visibly through Jesus Christ. He is the word of God in the flesh. He is the clear evidence of God working in the world. And, you know, I, we're talking about God's works. It's interesting this week, I was looking through a little bit of how Jesus describes his purpose for coming. And I'll give you just a couple of examples. Jesus said in John four thirty four, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. John 17, four, when he's praying for the believers, he says, I glorify you, God, on the earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And then finally in John 19, when Jesus is literally on the cross, breathing his last breath, Jesus says, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus came to do the work of God visibly, clearly, in the flesh, as a human. And then finally, when his purpose, when his work was finished, he said, it is finished. It's done. What was done? Redemption. The process of bringing us back to God was finished at that moment. And now the only thing we have to do is say yes. 
So let's bring this home for you and me. What about you and your purpose here today? Not here in the church, but here on earth in, in existing. What is, your, what is your life work to be going forward? Verse 10 is a beautiful summary verse of the whole psalm. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have good understanding. His praise endures forever. Basically saying, if you look at all the works of God, if you study them, like it says earlier in the psalm, that leads you to a reverence of God, the fear of the Lord, a reverence of God, which begins wisdom in your life. It leads you into a place where you can understand your existence here uniquely, your purpose is here, so that as you practice it, you begin to have good understanding. But I just want to focus for a moment on you and your work. What do you, what do you think of your day-to-day existence? Your, I mean, it could be your literal job. Like we talk about work being like our job that we get paid for. I know a lot of you are retired. Some of you are changing jobs or in-between jobs. But what do you think of your work? Just to focus on like the, the paid work for a moment, I read something this week about uh, a young person who's part of Generation Z, which is basically people, yeah, 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 basically teenagers and like early 20s are part of Generation Z. And this, some of these workers are just getting into the workforce for the first time. They're maybe just finishing college or high school. But this person said this, and I'm going to have to sanitize this because there's some bad language in it. Um, So I'm going to maybe skip over. I'm definitely going to skip over some of it. Um, But this person said this. Are there any other Gen Z workers finding it impossible to fathom the rest of our lives like this? In the midst of my first internship, and I cannot believe that generation after generation has been doing this kind of work and is okay with it. I sat sobbing at my laptop today trying to write some blog posts about federal funding that was assigned to me today, doing the most boring work of all time that drains me of all my energy and has zapped my passion for writing. And I'm just supposed to do this forever with a smile on my face because I need money? He goes on and on to talk about just how there's a generation of people who are just, they can't figure out that this is what life is going to be like like doing stuff that maybe they don't enjoy doing, but they have to because that's the only way to make money. And I hear in that a longing for work to be connected to their passion, to their soul, to their survival. And so for many of us today, and I think Generation Z is kind of bringing this up, um, but I'm sure some of you have felt this way before. I've felt some of this before as well. For many of us today, work can become either the deepest source of frustration and discouragement in life, like if you have a bad job and you go day after day, you're like, this is just awful. Or it can be the deepest source of meaning and identity in life. Some people find their work so fulfilling that they actually take it on so much that it actually becomes their identity. And that's the deepest place of purpose in their whole life. And both of those are neither the intended place of what work is supposed to be. And so as we reflect on God's works in the world, we, it does make us press in on our own day-to-day work as well, whether, again, whether it's a job or just tasks that you're committing yourself to. So what is the good understanding in the world then that we need to have? 
You know, and really it presses us in that we need a biblical theology of what work is, which is a sermon in and of itself. But let me give you just a couple of takeaway points here at the end. Number one, biblically speaking, your work matters to God deeply. It's worth mentioning that God created humans to work. Work existed before sin entered the world. So work is not a result of the fall. Work is actually part of God's design for a good and beautiful, flourishing world. So Genesis 1 and 2, it says that God, you know, there was, God created the fields, and he said there was no one yet to work the ground. And so in Genesis 2, he said God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And so work is deeply meaningful to life. Secondly, work is broken because of sin, directly. So when, when sin enters the world in Genesis 3, the very next chapter, specifically what God says to Adam, the same person that he put in the garden to work the garden, he says this directly. He says, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. The next chapter when Cain and Abel have their massive blowout and there's murder, Genesis 4.12, God says, When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. This is the reality of, a, of work in a broken world. So both of those things are true. God created us to work, and yet work is deeply broken. So we're always going to have frustrations. We're always going to have difficulty in the things we try to accomplish. Again, whether it's your paid job or just things you're trying to get done, trying to weed your garden, trying to do good in the world, there's just going to be frustration because it's part of the curse of living in our broken world. I've been really impacted just in the last few months by a short story by J.R. Tolkien, and it's called Leaf by Niggle. Niggle is the, the main character in the story. And the, the summary of the story, I've told some of you about this, is it's the story of a, of a man who's working a regular job, but he really loves to paint. And so in his free time, he would begin painting and he had this big dream of painting a giant, beautiful tree. And so he spent his whole life detailed, very carefully, trying to begin painting a tree in his house on a piece of canvas. And he spent time on a little leaf. And he'd go from leaf to leaf, very detailed. And he was so detailed and spent so much time on all of it that he never finished the tree. And one day he died with the tree incomplete. And if the story were to end there, you could have the parable of, well, that's just how work is in the world. You know, we're never going to fully finish our work. All of it has stuff that we're just not going to be able to fully realize and finish. I'm going to give you the conclusion to the story in just a moment. But the story, the story that that leads us into is just the reality that our work can often feel, think about opposite of how God's works are. Our work can sometimes feel subpar or unproductive. I'm no good at this. Our work can feel like it has no lasting meaning. I'm just pushing papers. No, this isn't making a difference in the world. 
It can feel unmemorable. No one's going to remember I'm doing this work. No one cares. It can feel like you're not actually helping people, just like you're just doing a task that has no meaning. Some jobs even feel invisible, like no one even knows what you're doing. You're just checking the clock. Or worst case, even your work can even contribute to something really bad or unjust in the world. And you can say, I feel like I'm participating in something that's unethical, but it's the only way I know how to make money. That's a broken world work. But redemption, when God redeems you, when he redeems people, when he redeems the whole world through Jesus, part of that redemption means that work also has redemption in it as well. You know, it's interesting that the very first person in the Bible who is described as filled with the Holy Spirit is a man named Bezalel, who was a worker building the temple of God in Exodus. He's the first person in the Bible to be mentioned as being filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with the Spirit to work, to do a task for God, to build the holy temple. And as we go through the New Testament, God's value of work begins to glimmer with redemption. Ephesians 2.10 says, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. You know, and, and we begin to live for more than ourselves. Colossians 3 says, whatever you do, work heartily as if for working for the Lord. Or Philippians 4, Paul says, you know, as for me, I, I'm, I'm someone who's speaking in need, but I've learned that in whatever situation I am to be content, even through the highs and the lows. And then maybe one of the silliest ones is in the book of 2 Corinthians, there's this new church who is so convinced that Jesus was going to come back any day visibly to the earth that they just all stopped working. The whole community stopped working. They said, we're, we're, we're quitting our jobs. We're going to wait for Jesus to come back. And so the Apostle Paul writes a letter in 2 Thessalonians, and he says, can you please keep working? Like, Jesus is going to come back, but be working. Don't be idle. You know, commit, commit to working. Don't just be sitting around waiting. Again, it's just uplifting this idea of work. God loves our work. And by working, we actually help others. So just to summarize it, he says, he says, we hear that some of you are walking in idleness, not busy at work, but are being busybodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their living. The value of work. The reality is, is that when God does come back and Jesus does visibly return and he makes all things new and he begins new creation, the new Jerusalem and the new heavens and the new earth, it says in Revelation 21 that the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, meaning that the work that we do here actually will be part of eternity. And when we see it that way, we actually begin to see the works of God in Psalm 111. Remember his great, enduring, memorable, provisional, visible, good work. That's actually what our work really is when it's done in Christ. When it's redeemed work, our work is great. 
It does endure. It will last forever. It is memorable. It actually will resonate with people around us. It can provide for others in ways that no other work can. It, it will be visible. It will be seen for all to see. And it is good. It fights for justice in the world. So to conclude, let me give you two final images. And one of them is the grand ending to the leaf story. But first, the first one's a story of three men who are working in a rock quarry. So just picture hard work, day to day, working in a rock quarry. The first man was asked, what do you do every day? And the first man says, I'm, I cut stone. It's true. Another man was asked, what do you do every day in the, in the rock quarry? He says, I'm earning money. That's true. But the third man was asked, what do you do every day? He says, I'm contributing to the building of a cathedral. They're all doing the same work. One man clearly knew what his purpose was that would endure. So the conclusion to the leaf story, so the man, Niggle, the, the guy who was doing the painting, he dies, he never completed his painting. But the end of the short story is he comes into heaven and he's in this beautiful field and he comes up over the horizon, crosses a hill, comes down into a valley and he sees something that he recognized but never had seen the full beauty of before. And it was his completed tree in the new heavens and the new earth that he began with in his mind, a vision of, and began to draw and to paint on earth. But now in eternity, he sees the completed tree and he continues to work on it to make it even more beautiful as part of eternity with God. And that's what our work can turn into, redeemed work. God's greatest work through you is begun here and completed and consummated in eternity with God. So whatever that looks like for you, whether it's a day-to-day -day job, whether it's a hobby, whether it's just the way you interact with people, take heart that your work is not in vain. Let me pray. We'll close with a final song. God, give us joy for the day, knowing that whatever you've called us into, whatever unique job or gifts or talents you've given us, whatever future that is uncertain or unknown to us, help us to take heart that if we're redeemed, if we give our life to you, you bring it all together. You give us purpose for the day, that will endure forever. So God, I pray that that will resonate for each person here. I pray that we'll be reminded of that when our work becomes frustrating at some point this week. You remind us that we are to praise the Lord because you've redeemed us and your works are great. So we praise you now in Jesus' name, amen.